I'm just, oh, you are you cold? Get out of here. President Trump seemed to be losing patience with a press conference about one week ago today. Now, I'm just saying, do you, should we keep this going a little Please? bit? Longer? Yes, indeed. Go ahead. Let me know when you get tired. And that's when he revealed this one last trick he has up his sleeve when it comes to the border wall he wants to build. Uh, have you considered using emergency powers to grant yourself authorities to build this wall without congressional approval? And second, yes, on I Mexico, have. you have. Yes, I have. And, and I can do it if I want. Even the reporter who asked this question seemed a little surprised by the answer. So is that uh, a threat hanging over the Democrats? I never threaten anybody. But, but I am allowed to do that, yes. Each day since, there has been this debate. Can President Trump actually do this? It's a debate that sometimes the president seems to be having with himself. First, he said he may declare an emergency. I may declare a national emergency. A few days later. I have the absolute right to declare a national emergency. And yesterday, just before he visited the border. If this doesn't work out, probably I will do it. I would almost say definitely. So which is it? The lawyers have so advised me. I'm not prepared to do that yet. But if I have to, I will. I have no doubt about it. I will. When I heard Trump talking about his lawyers, I realized I wanted to call up a lawyer of my own. Luckily, Slate's got one, Dahlia Lithwick, and she's here to puzzle out this idea. Can Trump build a wall by fiat? And what will happen if he tries? Stay with us. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Dahlia Lithwick covers the courts and law for Slate. She's been living in suspense for a few days now about the president's looming threat of a national emergency. Tuesday was going to be the big reveal, right? He was going to go on TV and declare a national state of emergency, and he had sort of been teeing that up, and that's what we thought would happen, and that didn't happen. Dahlia doesn't really do suspense. She's a lawyer. Lawyers investigate and debate outcomes. They cite things. But the law doesn't really give a clear picture of what's going to happen in the case of a national emergency, at least not the kind President Trump is reportedly preparing to declare. The safe bet is that a declaration would invite a legal challenge. But what next? People like his very own White House counsel were a little hinky about uh, whether he has the constitutional authority uh, to do what he wants to do. And interestingly, when he started making noises about, I'm going to declare a state of emergency, I'm going to use eminent domain and seize all this, you know, non-government, non-military land. I'm going to like, you know, including bird sanctuaries and, you know, Native American tribal lands. I'm going to just do it. And a lot of the pushback actually came from conservative commentators. Hmm. So, you know, weirdly, you had like Ben Shapiro and David French and, you know, a lot of Andrew Napolitano on Fox News, which is who is, I think, the Trump's real lawyer. All of them saying uh, either I think this is unconstitutional flat out or saying 
we squawked when Obama did this, right, when he he started doing things by executive fiat. And moreover, we're going to flip out when, you know, President Cory Booker does it. So don't do it. And so I think in a weird way, he's been pinched, not just sort of between Rush Limbaugh, you know, and, and Coulter, who are saying do it. And, you know, a lot of thoughtful conservative lawyers who are otherwise on his side about everything who are saying either this is just flat out unconstitutional or this is a horrible precedent. So I think that this is not an easy move for him. Hmm. And that's why he's been doing this. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Here I go. I'm going to. Oh, I didn't do it. But, you know, there's it's not an emergency. It's a crisis. But I think he's inching his way to it through a thicket of very serious legal guidance telling him this is a mistake. Can you just remind us what a national emergency would actually allow him to do? First of all, it's important to say there's no formal legal meeting meaning for an emergency declaration. We don't know what that means exactly. We do know that the president has uh, the power to issue an emergency declaration. And we actually know that... The case that we think about when we think about this is the steel seizures case from 1952, hmm. right? And uh, the, what happened there? That was the the case that went. So when, like for instance, Mary, when Adam Schiff just says it's just flat out unconstitutional, uh-huh. uh, he's citing Youngstown Sheet and Tube, which was this 1952 case. This is when President Truman tries to seize, seize the steel mills uh, during the Korean War. There, there's a labor dispute, and he says, "I'm going to keep them open because we need this for." war uh, powers. And in a hugely powerful rebuke, the U.S. Supreme Court says, no, we are not going to accept your uh, rationale for this kind of unilateral action. And then there becomes uh, an incredibly important test for when the president has that authority. But all that happens before 1976 when Congress passes the National Emergencies Act. And that was supposed to be a a post-Watergate corrective that was going to give the president authority to declare emergencies. But he also had to kind of check in with Congress and get uh, Congress. He had to explicitly say what the emergency was, uh, say what he was going to do, and then get repeated permission uh, from the Congress. So this was meant to be a check. Hmm. Uh, The effect was completely the opposite. It just institutionalized vast presidential authority. We've now got because Cong- Congress just rubber stamps. Congress doesn't even look at this. Congress, <laughs> there's like a guy in the basement who's just like, oh, I'm the national emergency guy. In the f- 42 years since this has passed, only once has we seen Congress exercise any kind of uh, authority over this. And literally, we're now in a situation where there. I just want to get the number because it's so funny. So, so, so CNN is reporting that there are actually 31 existing de- declared emergency emergencies uh, in the country that nobody is exercising oversight on. And we're all like, eh, okay, this would be the 32nd, which is just a sort of long way of saying that to the extent that we have this statute that's supposed to be giving Congress uh, the power to check the president, they're all like on snooze. I hear this and I think back to the opioid crisis where he was like, I'm going to declare a national emergency. And then it became a debate about what kind of emergency it was. And then it wasn't declared and just seems... It seems like we haven't defined it well or put any checks and balances in. Well, I think that that's the short answer to why on Tuesday what 
Trump declared was a crisis. And hilariously, it was largely a humanitarian crisis in this construction. So a crisis, I guess, is like the stop on the road before you get to an emergency. But I think he's trying to sell uh, that there is this massive emergency going on. And I should just say, for, for purposes of what a court would have to do to determine, because presumably the minute this happens, somebody um, seeks an injunction and this is tied up in litigation. One of the things the court's going to have to do is say, is this a legit emergency? And what do you do with facts that, you know, uh, illegal immigration is down, that drugs coming across the border uh, at these, uh, you know, uh, checkpoints. At these checkpoints are not uh, the way illegal drugs are being interdicted. So I think there is this whole over the question of is this an emergency and really if it's an emergency and a plan is going to be like 10 years to build the wall, like is this that kind of TikTok emergency? And the DOJ could get in there too, right? Isn't their job to make sure that this is like, right? Yeah. Well, the DOJ has been in the position of defending an awful lot of these kind of helter-skelter things that the president does. So the president, remember, immediately when he announced the travel ban, again, without really lawyering up what that meant and Sally Yates, you know, being fired because she said, I can't enforce this. Uh, Donald Trump tends to do things like, I think I'm going to have like a ban on trans soldiers in the military and then leave the DOJ to fix it. And in fact, uh, one of the reasons he keeps losing in the courts is because, you know, including the family separation policy, including the sanctuary city policy, is because he doesn't have this legal architecture underneath it to support it. And the DOJ then is kind of rocked back on its heels. It has to defend something that is not always plausible. And there's this other super boring but super interesting (laughs) kind of piece of this, which is that agencies have protocols that they have to follow when they effectuate these huge, huge changes. And one of the things he keeps doing is sort of saying, we don't even need to do any of that. And that actually ends up tangling him up in the courts. Okay, one more thing. You cover the Supreme Court for Slate. And this week, something really surprising happened. Can you talk about it a little bit? I can uh, with the huge caveat that I don't have insider information. Like this is the thing like, you know, my dad's calling me. My, like, What do you know? And I'm like, I don't have like a red bat phone to like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So I can just tell you what I'm hearing, which is, yes, it's extraordinary for the first time in over 25 years. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who, by the way, like has survived colon cancer and pancreatic cancer, is, you know, missing oral arguments this week. And she didn't miss oral arguments after her husband died. She was there. I was there the next day. She was on the bench reading, you know, a dissent. So she does not kid around. And she didn't miss when she was treated for other cancers. And so, uh, you know, the world flipped out because she missed Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday arguments this week. So what what I can tell you is what the surgeons are saying, which is, uh, you know, she just had uh, on December 25th, she had half of her left lung removed. Uh, this was the result of, you remember, they found some uh, malignant nodes. They found the nodes because this is like she the house fell. that Jack fell because yeah. she broke, she cracked ribs. Uh, and only because they were x-raying the ribs did they find the nodes. So it's a huge surgery. Now, she's home. 
She's working from home. She's listening to, you know, she's got the audio. She's reading transcripts. She's participating. Yeah. What does working from home mean as a Supreme Court justice? You know, Are her clerks there? Like, what's going on? The chief, ju- when Chief Justice, then Chief Justice Rehnquist was very, very sick uh, with thyroid cancer. And he just worked from his hospital bed, worked from home. So what she's doing is drafting opinions and reading draft opinions that other people uh, have written and doing all the things that justices do, uh, maybe to help put it in perspective. You know, they hear 12 cases a month for for six days. Mm -hmm. So this is not a huge part of the job. It's the public facing part of the job. It's the part where we get to see them. And so I think we get this notion that this is the totality of what they do. But 95 percent of the job, it's like an iceberg, is the (laughs) stuff that they would never put in like the TV show because it's so boring. It's just them reading and writing. And that's she's perfectly capable of doing that from home. Now, that said, I guess we should add she's 85. Yeah. I think I read somewhere she's the fourth oldest like Supreme Court. It's something like that. I mean, Kennedy retired at 90. He was no. no uh, Stevens. John Stevens, Paul Stevens. John, yeah, Stevens was older. retired at 90. But, you know, Kennedy retired at 80. Uh, yeah. So it's not 81, I think. It's not a trivial thing to be 85 and then a th- three time cancer survivor. And, you know, I think that we get very hagiographic about like her workout tapes. But she, you know. Yeah, her- I mean, I guess we she's become this feminist icon. And I wonder if it just sort of prevents us from seeing the 85 year old woman that she is in some ways. A friend of mine who's a lawyer posted, and I thought this was thoughtful, you know, there's this liberal debate of like, well, should she have retired while Obama was president? And she was like, you know, you got to be careful with that because part of feminism is letting people do what they want. And we've let these guys work until they're 90. Well, that's what she said. One of the things she says is in response to that is like, weird, nobody was demanding that John Paul Stevens retire. Nobody was demanding that Stephen Breyer retire. So I think she does see this valence of sexism around it that, you know, there was this laser focus on why she wasn't stepping down. And I think that offends her. For what it's worth, anecdotally, a lot of people have said that she watched Sandra Day O'Connor get forced off the court. That's itself an amazing feminist story that doesn't get told, right, where Hmm. Chief Justice Rehnquist is incredibly sick and O'Connor's husband is incredibly sick, so much so that she says, I'm going to have to next year, she says to the chief justice, uh, I'm going to uh, step down so that I can care for my husband. So stop and sit with the fact that like male justices don't retire to care for their ailing spouses. And then this is the kind of weird feminist bit. Uh, Chief Justice uh, William Rehnquist says to her, actually, no, I'm going to retire next year. So you should go now. And he says to her, what? We, because you can't have two in, in the same summer. There's just a core tradition to confirmation hearings is too much of a jolt to the public system. So he says to her, essentially, don't do it next year. I'm going to do it next year. You do it now. She, by the way, I should just add, is at the height of her powers. At this moment, she's the most important woman in the country. She's the 5-4 vote, the swing vote. She was Kennedy before Kennedy was Kennedy. So he says, step down now. She steps down. And, and he promptly dies uh, shortly after. So not only do we end up having two confirmations hearings, boom, boom, in a row. We have John Roberts and Alito. But then she ends up having stepped down before she was ready. And the really tragic coda, if you're counting sort of feminist indignities here, is that within a very, very short time, her husband is institutionalized. He Mm -hmm. doesn't recognize her anymore. Ginsburg has said she was forced off before she was ready. And she could have been on the court for five more years or seven more years or whatever. And, you know, 
we don't know what the world would have looked like. And I think that story is playing in the back of Ginsburg's head when she's like, no man is going to tell me Mm -hmm. it's my time because I saw that happen to a person who really, I think, in many ways was her sister at the Supreme Court. It's a Mm -hmm. long, long, long story. I like that story. Yeah, I I didn't know that story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dahlia Lithwick, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Mary, thank you, as always, for having me today. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Before we go, one last rabbit hole I jumped down with Slate reporter Ruth Graham. I think I heard about it the way everyone did, which is this strange like very positive, warm and fuzzy statement they posted on Twitter. The it Ruth is talking about here, it's Jeff Bezos' divorce from his wife Mackenzie. Their statement earlier this week ended like this. Though the labels might be different, we remain a family and we remain cherished friends. It almost, I, I wrote, it almost like feels like an anniversary announcement because it's all about like their shared life and their love and their continuing love and all of this. But it was it was a divorce announcement after 25 years of marriage. I mean, it's like, I, I'm thinking of Gwyneth Paltrow. What did she call it when she announced her divorce? Yeah, a conscious uncoupling. It felt very much like that. <laughs> Around the newsroom, this is a story we just can't stop talking about. Maybe it's because Bezos is the world's richest person. Maybe it's because Amazon is so deeply embedded in our lives. Maybe it's just because we love the crazy details about how Bezos and his wife met. They've been married since before he started Amazon. And he's described it as sort of like that he approached this as like a professional dater back then to when he was ready to get to find someone to get serious with this really systematic approach. So and he called it the women flow, which is a play on this term deal flow, which I guess is a Wall Street term for kind of managing the offers that come your way. Like you won't even waste your time on anything, you know, less than $5 million or whatever. It's a way of like filtering out the deals that you want to even consider. The funny thing is, it's like, I can't tell if it's like gross or endearing. <laughs> I mean, I think it's endearing when it's told as an endearing story and then when you're looking back on it like after something like this falls apart and after now you know the national Enquirer is reporting that he has moved on with this like glamazon wife of his best friend and then that makes uh, that makes it a little like weird and gross and clinical to look back at his like selection of his perfect mate in his 20s um who he's now moved on from maybe we can't stop talking about this story because in a way it's reassuring that there are no perfect mates no matter who you are. And that's the show. Tell us what you think by leaving a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Your review is how people find us, and we want more people to find us, so help us out. You can find us on Twitter, at Slate Podcasts, or you can find me, at Mary's Desk. And if you're taking a break from Twitter, I respect that. But just keep listening. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, and produced by Mary Wilson and Jason DeLeon, with loads of help from Danielle Hewitt. Talk to you tomorrow.